Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. You know, he's a founder that has done this a few times. You know, I think that we're going to be learning here about fast growth, building, scaling, you know, all that good stuff that we like to hear. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Gurjit Singh. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So originally born in India. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life was good. Uh, you know, my dad, he used to work in the government in India. I was sort of grew up a single child reading a lot of science fiction. Uh, and so I've always been a huge fan of science fiction ever since I, I was young. Uh, got a computer at a very young age, started to, you know, learn to program, you know, didn't have any siblings to play with anyway. So like I spent a bunch of my time learning to program and make games. Then I grew up to be an engineer, went to uh, work for Texas Instruments after my engineering. Spent just about a year at Texas Instruments, and then I, you know, came to the U.S. to to do a master's, and then eventually a Ph.D. at Stanford. And why? What 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 triggered the U.S. and especially Stanford? You know, I grew up with a visceral fear of math. I I basically grew up with this symptom uh, where I thought somebody would jump out of a bush one day and they would ask me a math question and they would discover I'm a total fake. So I was super duper scared of math. 
and uh, I started looking for programs. Uh, I knew I wasn't good enough to do pure math. So I was looking for programs where I could kind of mix my interest in computer science with math. And Stanford at the time had this program called uh, Scientific Computing and Computational Math. And I was like, okay, if it turns out that I do suck at the math, I'm sure that I'll be fine in computer science. <laughs> so that's how I chose Stanford because they had this program. I applied only to about three universities and, uh, you know, was lucky enough to be selected by Stanford and nobody else. And how was the, um, you know, being exposed to all of that innovation, you know, you have in Stanford, you know, a place that has founders, you know, like uh, the Google, you know, guys and, and, and other really big, big guys, you know, that has shaped you know, the hyper growth, you know, in, in venture world. I mean, how, how was it to be part of that? It was incredible. You know, Stanford is such, such an incredible place. I got to learn so much. I started uh, at Stanford, you know, uh, working in this very sort of new area there for GPU computing. Somebody had just invented sort of being able to use GPU shaders to do computation. And I was one of the first users of using GPUs to do general computation. Uh, so that was such an incredible thing to be involved and sort of just participate in these bits of future that you can do in a place like Stanford, sort of on a routine basis. Uh, I worked with Andrew Ng for a little bit on a robotics project, then eventually did my PhD, you know, uh, in the in the pure math department. Uh, it was just incredible. All the people, all the projects. Now, sort of looking back at it, about you know, 15 years. Uh, a lot of the things that were very nascent back then, but were completely mind-blowing, they are now completely mainstream. And, you know, we couldn't build things like deep neural networks without using GPUs for computation as an example. Uh, and so it was just like a slice of future. I hear you. And now when it comes to getting a slice of future, you wanted the slice for yourself, you know, so you actually <laughs> came out of there and, and you went at it. So how was that process of really, you know, putting the band together, you know, before even doing that, you know, uh, really coming up with the idea, you know, the, the, the gap that you saw and the potential solution that you could bring to really cover that gap. I mean, how was that, you know, ideation, you know, to incubation and launch, you know, type of process and experience? So for my first company right out of, out of Stanford, you know, it was sort of super duper coincidental. We were working in this old area of math called topology that we figured out how to make practical and how to use, you know, uh, make it usable. And one of our early users of the research software that I had written ended up being a cancer researcher who used sort of that very newly created software on a decades old cancer research data set. And she discovered that there was a new type of breast cancer by reanalyzing old data using that new software. And she was able to publish it in, uh, you know, in, in great publications. Uh, and that drew the attention of DARPA, who had basically funded the research. So they basically gave us an SBIR and encouraged us to commercialize it. And uh, so it was basically, you know, it was kind of thrust upon me. Right? I, I didn't really, I can't really take too much credit for being super smart about it, to be honest. Uh, but, um, but when they said, hey, you know, go start a company, we can, do, we can do some sort of a seed financing. I didn't know anything about company building or entrepreneurship. And so I took a class at Stanford, which was taught by Professor Steve Blank and Anne Murako. Anne is an amazing, amazing, amazing investor. She was such a great mentor. So is Steve. Uh, and she was a TA in the class. And so as a class project, I basically presented my very early nascent thoughts about how we would take that software and turn it into a business. Uh, and it was just sort of through that class that things precipitated 
and we ended up sort of building the company and ended up leading a $2 million round of financing in the company a year after I had taken the class. And so I learned a lot uh, and kind of accidentally started my last company. So tell us about, you know, what, 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 what happened next? So obviously you come out of there, you have the idea, uh, you get going, you know, what happened next? Yeah. So, you know, we, I have to, again, say, I didn't know anything about anything back then from a business perspective, right? We just knew we had this great tech and like it could be used for all these different kinds of things, but didn't really know how to build a business. So to begin with, you know, again, we were sort of super lucky that DARPA had funded the company, you know, they wanted us to commercialize it. So they helped connect us with a bunch of potential customers in different industries. And so we had a bunch of different government agencies who were using our software for intelligence purposes. And then I'll tell you one interesting story. Very coincidentally, one of the first uh, few introductions that they made uh, was with a pharma company uh, that was based out of Germany. They had a drug that was failing phase three clinical trials. And uh, similar to that cancer researcher who very early on had used our software, they essentially used our software to discover a subpopulation of patients uh, for whom the drug worked in a very different way. And so they were able to kind of get that drug through the phase three clinical trials and the drug eventually passed. They ended up becoming our first commercial customer and, uh, you know, paid us a million dollars a year for three years. That's uh, amazing. And sort of very coincidentally, we, we ran into this customer. The software obviously worked uh, and, you know, they, they succeeded as well. Because for the people that are listening for this company, for your first business, I asked the, that you built, I mean, what ended up being the business model? Yeah, so we ended up basically building vertically specific machine learning based enterprise applications, right? So let me break it down. We essentially had three verticals into which we sold our software. We sold software into large pharmaceutical companies. We sold software into large hospital systems like Kaiser and Intermountain and so on. Uh, and we sold software into uh, large banking customers like HSBC, Standard Chartered, Citibank. So Vertically specific software meant that we had basically built a version of our platform, which was specific to those customers. So we could go to any pharma company and we would sell them the pharma specific product. Uh, similarly, we would go to any bank and sell them the banking specific product, which was used for money laundering and whatnot. Like HSBC, no? I mean, even they offered you a technical advisory role. So how was that experience of, of seeing like the, you know, from an advising, you know, perspective, you know, such a large company like that? I mean, what, what did you experience there? Yeah, so HSBC, I don't know if you ever saw that show on Netflix called Bad Money. I believe I have. Right? So which was about money laundering and HSBC. So HSBC was under this immense amount of pressure to essentially buck up their money laundering systems so that, you know, bad actors would not be able to use HSBC rails to transact. Uh, and so they essentially ended up using our software to detect types of money laundering that previously might have been super difficult for them. And to explain to regulators, and so the, this explainability in AI is a big thing, uh, and to explain to regulators how the software worked and why they were able to now catch new and different types of money laundering. And so it ended up being a super successful project for them. And to give you a sense of scale, right, somebody at that scale spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year in operating their financial crimes uh, division. And so it ended up being super successful for them, which is why they invited me to join their technical advisory board. That's amazing. Now, now for you, you know, in terms of the capital side of things, how did you guys capitalize the business? How much money did you raise for this company as a whole? For Ayasti, we ended up raising about $100 million total. 
including the initial grant from DARPA, as well as about, call it $95 million from venture capitalists. And what, were, what was that experience of uh, going through these different cycles? It was amazing, right? So there was a lot to learn. When we were building our company to begin with, from a seed round perspective, you know, we were very lucky to start working with Anne because she was one of the few venture capitalists who could understand the technical details behind what we were talking about. And since we were not great at marketing to begin with, you know, we were super lucky to end up working with Anne who understood it probably better than we did and ended up investing in the company. Uh, then we raised a Series A financing with Kosla Ventures. I uh, had a great opportunity to work with Vinod Kosla, who I, you know, he's such an amazing person. I learned so much from him. And like by the time, you know, Series B and Series C for the company came around, we had an established business model. You know, we had customers, you know, we were upselling to them. The company was growing. Uh, so I think once, once we hit the growth stage of the company, you know, raising capital was a whole lot easier than at the beginning. Partly because we didn't know how to best explain what we were doing and partly because what we were doing was pretty novel. So let's talk about the acquisition. You know, how did the acquisition come about? Because obviously, you know, at this point, you know, for you, you know, the beauty too is that this is your first business and also, you know, the first company that, you know, it reaches the finish line, you know, the acquisition. So how was that experience of being able to see how the full cycle, you know, of a hyper growth company looks like? Yeah. So, you know, as we continued growing the company, we we were out looking to raise another round of financing for the company. And again, very coincidentally, we ran into uh, we ran into this individual. His name is Ramesh Vadwani. Uh, he runs uh, Symphony AI and the Symphony Technology Group overall. And, you know, we basically connected on the fundamentals of how to actually build an enterprise software business that's based on AI. So his vision, very similar to our vision, was essentially to take a broad machine learning platform and build vertically specific applications, you know, where the business user could use the power of the AI without having to know all the technical underpinnings of it. And so we very coincidentally ran into him and, you know, one thing led to another. Basically, they said, hey, why don't, you know, why don't you sell the company to us? Uh, so again, very coincidentally, we lucked out with that and, and it worked out very well for all parties. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, 
fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. So then after now, you know, the company is acquired, you know, you start to see what's out there, you know, to a certain degree. Obviously, you know, you probably did the, the, all the support with integration and all that stuff, but you experienced something interesting, you know, with a coworker of your wife. So what happened there? Yeah. So after I sold the company, one sort of condition that I had of the sale was that I was not going to go work there. Right. I basically said, I will do an integration for some time, which they paid me for very well. But then, you know, I'm out like, you know, I then I'll go do something else. And so I very coincidentally, uh, somebody in my wife's office was going through IVF in vitro fertilization at that time. And, uh, you know, they were suffering with this infertility problem. Uh, they went to a clinic, they went through six cycles of treatments, paid about $45,000 a cycle and did not succeed and ended up having to file for a bankruptcy. You know, it completely destroyed their life. My wife was kind of helping them think through uh, how to sort of put their life back together. And the more I learned about them, the more I realized that, you know, they clearly made poor financial decisions, right? You don't typically become bankrupt by, by being great at financial management. Um, but at the same time, you know, the clinic on the other side was also not entirely forthcoming about their chances of success. It was super infuriating. Uh, that they kind of, I feel like they got taken advantage of. And again, very coincidentally, as all of this was going on, my now co-founder Sahil was visiting us in the US as a family friend. Both him and I had grown up in Delhi in India. He's a physician himself. And, you know, we were venting at him about the situation with her, with my wife's colleague. And he said, why don't you come see a clinic in India the next time you're here? So, you know, I just sold the company. I was going to see my family there anyway. And uh, so I... I saw an IVF clinic for the first time in India and I was so utterly shocked. My expectation was that somebody, you know, somebody pays $45,000 for a medical treatment, that there would be some science fiction going on behind the scenes, right? There would be some automation, some standardization. But on the other hand, when you go to an IVF clinic, it was like a high school biology lab. It had the same microscopes that I had seen in high school biology, you know, 20 years in the past. It, it just felt super archaic and very old school. So I came back to the U.S., visited a bunch of IVF clinics here in the U.S. and realized that they had the same exact equipment, the same exact procedures, and the same exact success rate of IVF as a third world country. So that was basically what gave us the impetus to start learning about IVF, about embryology, and then using sort of what I know, which is AI and machine learning to help, uh, to help increase the success rate of IVF and make it more accessible to people. So obviously, you know, like second um, rodeo, right? You know, and obviously, you know, many, many lessons learned. 
What would you say, you know, for my guest, it was one lesson that you took with you that you knew you were for sure going to apply to this company? Let me complete the story about my pharma customer at Ayasti. Remember I told you we yeah, 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 sold yeah. them that software, a million bucks a year, got the deal done, super happy, high fives all around. But six months down the line, uh, you know, the the drug passed, right? And I, I saw the headlines, uh, you know, I read in the paper about how successful it was. And I realized, you know, how much money that they were going to make by doing it. And I felt, I felt bad, you know, I, I felt like, uh, I felt like I undersold my software. I could have done, I could have charged more for it. But then I came to realize that I was being unfair, right? I got what they, what I asked for, right? The guy said, Hey, how much do you want? I, I said, I want this. And he didn't even negotiate, right? So I got what I asked for and they had taken all the risk, right? I, I just wrote some software, right? They had done all the work, created all the data, done all this, like they had done all the work. So one thing that I learned about myself, um, which I wanted to apply in the next company, was that I wanted to run a full stack operation, soup to nuts, where we build the tech, we take it to the consumers, and we sort of have incontrovertible proof of value that we've made somebody's lives better. Uh, and so that was, a, that was sort of the, when I was looking at the next business that I start, I wanted to do something sort of soup to nuts where AI or machine learning could have a huge role, you know, which, you know, IVF is one of those fields. And, and I was also super inspired by healthcare. Now for this, for this company, then for, for, for this company that we're talking about now, which is Omar Robotics, your latest baby, what's the business model? How do you guys make money here? The business model is really, really simple. As I said, we are a full stack, vertically integrated company, which means that we operate clinics. So we have five fertility clinics across the U.S., One's in Santa Barbara in California, one's in St. Louis, one's in Atlanta, one's in New York City, one's in Long Island. So, you know, very simply, families who need help or are having trouble conceiving naturally, you know, they can approach our clinics. We provide fertility services and, you know, they pay us for the services. So also machine learning to find the best sperm cell. I mean, this yes. sounds like... <laughs> Pretty crazy stuff. So, 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 walk us through through this, you know, yeah. school of thought. So let me let me zoom all the way back out first, right? So in IVF, if somebody's having trouble conceiving, uh, you know, the way the way an IVF clinic works is that the physician works with the patients to express their gametes, their sperm cells and egg cells outside the human body. There is an embryology lab then, which essentially takes the gametes, the egg cells and the sperm cells picks one individual sperm cell, injects it into an egg, and then, you know, lets the egg develop into an embryo. And then once the embryo is ready, the physician implants the embryo back with the patient. So that's kind of how the, how the whole IVF journey works. Now, in this journey, everything is manual. You know, everything is done by eye and everything is done by feel. So, for example, when the embryo is created, somebody looks under a microscope with their eye picks out an individual sperm cell, literally picks it up with a manipulator and literally injects it into the egg. And as you can imagine, there are so many parts of this that can go wrong, right? You could pick the wrong sperm cell. You could inject it in the wrong way. You could accidentally damage the DNA of the sperm cell or the egg cell while doing it. Uh, and just like any skill-based job, you know, your results are better in the morning than in the evening. Even the best embryologist has bad days. And so, there's like so much lack of consistency in all of this. So ultimately, we want to automate all of this. 
for the first thing that we have done is, as you mentioned, we've built a device for sperm selection. Let me give you context behind why sperm selection. In a typical IVF cycle, you know, a family is dealing with maybe 10 or 20 eggs. And eggs are very, very, very precious. Eggs are difficult for the patient. They are emotionally challenging, physically difficult. So there is no selection in eggs. You, know, you get a small handful number of eggs and you have to use all the eggs that you can in a cycle. Your aim is to convert as many eggs into embryos as possible. On the other side, in a typical healthy male sperm sample, there's 100 million sperm cells. Also, typically, only 4% of these cells are considered to be normal according to the WHO classification for cells. So today, without our technology, an embryologist looks at about 20 cells out of 100 million for about 10 seconds before they pick one to fertilize an egg with. And if you do the math in your head, the probability that if you look at 20 cells out of 100 million, that that small sample, even containing one of the 4 million normal sperm cells, is so abysmally small that selecting the best sperm cell is not a human scale problem. So our first device, Oma Sperm Insight, basically uses AI to help an embryologist find the most promising sperm cell by helping them look through more of the sample. So they look through more of the sperm cells before they pick one to fertilize an egg with. Wow. So that's what it does. Now, now you guys also have raised some money here. How much have you, have you raised so far? So we have raised uh, about $37 million between equity and debt, about 29 equity and the rest in debt. And in this case, I mean, you're also, you know, now experienced with uh, capital raising, you know, given your last yes. experience with your previous company. So what did you do differently here when it came to raising money? Too many things, to be honest. But I, I think the main thing that we did differently was that we are now building a very different kind of a business, right? Like my last company, Enterprise Software, a very different ballgame. This is a completely different set of business. It's vertically integrated, you know, has medical devices and so on. So the main, the most important thing that I learned from my last sort of capital raising uh, experience was that you have to find investors who are, who are in agreement with you on the strategy of the company and that the problem deserves to be solved. So that's the main thing that we did in raising money is we found investors, uh, Jazz Ventures and Root Ventures in particular for us, who are super well aligned with us on the importance of the problem, how best to solve it, and our go-to-market approach. And obviously, you know, that alignment, you know, it's absolutely everything, uh, especially like, for example, in this company, I mean, you guys, you, you raised a little bit uh, fast. I mean, in this case, compared to your last one, you know, you literally went to 10 million in just two years. So how were you guys able, you know, to, to, to do that, to manage to do that? I mean, that's pretty interesting. First, one of the main lessons that I learned from IASTI, in fact, I've also been investing in other companies and advising other companies as well, startups. And one of the main things that I see people doing incorrectly is they don't attempt to make money fast enough. And so our sort of goal from day one uh, at Omar Robotics was that, you know, while we will continue building our technology in parallel, but building the technology and making money are two independent and equally important skills for, for our business. Like we could actually start operating the business with, you know, while our technology was still being developed. And so we had this maniacal focus on, you know, we were maniacally focused on customers. So one of the very first things we did was we set up a marketing funnel. We figured out how, what best messaging to use to attract customers. Uh, how do we sort of run the entire customer experience process while developing the technology in parallel? 
And since we are in healthcare, you know, healthcare obviously has regulations and, uh, you know, laws and regulations that you have to abide by. So while, while we were doing all of that in parallel, by the time we opened our first clinics and started seeing first patients, our technology was also ready to be used in the lab. So we kind of timed it very well. Uh, and then we've also been able to grow the company very aggressively as well. Now, in this case, you know, for you guys, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision, you know, of the company is fully realized. What does that world look like? That's interesting. So I'll tell you some some statistics. So for if you think about fertility in the US, you know, about 90,000 births happen a year from IVF in the US, okay? To put that number into perspective, that is about 2.1% of all births uh, that happen in the US are, are due to IVF. Let me compare that number 2.1% in the US with other countries. So if you go to or think about a country like Denmark, Israel, Japan, Greece, that number is between, you know, call it 6 and 10 or 8 and 12%, somewhere in that ballpark. So any way you cut it, the US market is dramatically underserved from a fertility perspective, right? So access to fertility treatments is a major problem. And so as we realize our vision, you know, we imagine that every family who wants to have a child should be able to access the most advanced fertility treatments period. Part of it is pricing, right? Which is, it is so expensive. If we can make it more affordable, more people will do it. So we are expanding the market. Part of it is the technology, right? So on an average, a family will go through three cycles of IVF treatments before they succeed or they give up. So at the full realization of our technology, we hope that the number of cycles that it takes to succeed should be much lower, should be maybe one. Uh, so that's what we are aspiring to. and. You know, at the same time, the final sort of part of our strategy, we call it human-centered care, is if you talk to many people who have gone through IVF today, you know, they feel like they are a number in the system. They don't feel like they are empowered. They don't feel like they're educated. They don't feel like they're cared for. Uh, similar to sort of the, my, you know, my wife's colleague who went through this IVF treatment and sort of ended up going bankrupt. They don't feel any control. So we want to provide this human-centered experience to our patients. Uh, and our families who place their trust in us. So we educate them, we make sure they get the best treatment that they're able to afford it, that's, it's available everywhere. So that's kind of what success looks like to us. I love it. And now, if I was to put you into a time machine, Gurjeet, and I was to take you back to that time where you were still in Stanford and, and, and being a student there, and if you were able to have a sit down with that younger self, and having the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? So I think the most important thing that I would tell myself and everybody, honestly, is that, is that you, you succeed by making your own game, right? You don't succeed by playing other people's games. What that means, right, is that especially when you're coming up in the academic route, you're studying, you know, you do your exams, you, you know, do a master's, PhD, whatever, a lot of that time, right, somebody else sets the exam for you. Somebody else says, oh, if you do this, gold star, that's great. If you do that, gold star, that's great. On the other hand, you know, to succeed in business, right, basically, or to succeed in entrepreneurship, you kind of have to, there is nobody telling you what the best thing to do is, right? You have to build your own game and you have to succeed at it. 
So there are infinite ways of succeeding. Uh, there is no one set path that you have to follow and that would be the best thing to do. And so in some sense, that realization, which again, I am lucky I learned it from Vinod, but that realization, I think, goes a long way, can go a long way in anybody's life, is that there is no set path. You know, you can succeed in many, many, many different ways. You have to have the will and you have to keep trying. I love it. So, Gurjeet, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm super easy to find. I'm Gurjeet at Gmail. That's it. I love it. Well, Gurjeet, thank you so much for being today on the show with us. It has been an honor to have you here. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.